Hello, and welcome to Down the Rabbit Hole, a podcast about the things that I spend my time learning about that don't really have any sort of relevance to my everyday life. Thank you for joining. At this point, I'm guessing the people listening are like five of my friends, and I very much appreciate that. If you can do me a favor and rate this episode, comment, subscribe, and hopefully maybe help me um, turn this hobby into something meaningful and worthwhile, that would be wonderful. Otherwise, I hope you just enjoyed this episode. Today I'm going to be talking about the term snake oil, and it's going to be relevant to the theme that I'm going to have for the next few episodes, which is going to be a history of bogus medical treatments. thought it would be only appropriate to discuss the etymology of the term snake oil and explore why we use that term to describe bogus treatments. Today I'm going to be discussing xenophobia and racism. I'm going to be discussing government regulation and activism, muckraking journalism, and a little bit about a renegade cowboy. I'm going to admit that I actually recorded this episode and another one about a year ago, and I did it really fancy. I used a fancy microphone. I used fancy music. I wrote a very structured script, and I never actually released it and put it out because I was being overly critical. I was really self-conscious of my vocal fry. And finally, the other night, I couldn't sleep, um, and I was like, fuck it. What else am I going to do? I'm in quarantine. So without further ado, please join me as I go down the rabbit hole. So, like I said, we're going to be going over the etymology of the term snake oil today. Snake oil is a euphemism for deceptive marketing. You frequently hear it in connection with healthcare and health treatments, medicine, etc. If someone is accused of selling snake oil, they're basically being accused of scamming you or selling something that doesn't do what it claims to do. A snake oil salesman is someone who is being dishonest, or sometimes a snake oil salesman has convinced themselves of the efficacy of what they're doing because they need to believe it in order to sell it. So when I'm thinking of that term, the stereotype, the picture that comes up in my mind is that character in the movie Edward Scissorhands, the one uh, starring Johnny Depp, that character named Adolfo Pirelli. He's played by Sasha Baron Cohen. He sells this miracle elixir, which is purported to stimulate the growth of hair. If you remember, he's a very over-the-top character. And in the movies, when you see this kind of character, it's a very over-the-top, almost very racialized character, right? That character played by Sasha Baron Cohen is kind of supposed to be a caricature of an Italian man. And that's actually going to play an important theme in what I'm going to be discussing in the next few minutes. So when I started this journey down this rabbit hole, I figured at some point someone was selling snake oil and that that snake oil was not doing what it was supposed to be doing. Snake oil is actually a treatment that originated in Chinese medicine, and it's a treatment usually extracted from Chinese water snakes. And that oil that was extracted from those snakes was used as a treatment for arthritis, bursitis, and other joint pains. It is believed to have been brought into North America during the gold rush in the mid-1800s when there was a lot of Chinese immigrants coming into the country. The oil, which was actually fat extracted from those snakes, was studied in the 1980s, and it's actually been found that that material is full of omega-3 fatty acids. 
The thing is, omega-3 fatty acids have actually been found to have some very, very helpful medical properties, both when taken topically and ingested. They reduce inflammation like arthritis pain, but also improve cognitive function, reduce blood pressure, cholesterol, and even help with depression. In a study published in Annals of Nutrition and Metabolism in July of 2007, a team of researchers evaluated the effects of Arabu sea snake oil on a number of outcomes in mice, including maze learning ability and swimming endurance. In both of those cases, snake oil significantly improved the ability of mice in comparison to those who were just fed lard. Another journal claims topical application is also an effective way to get those essential fatty acids into the body. And I'm going to put links to both of these studies in the description of this podcast episode so that you can go see for yourself. So then, if there are some medical benefits to snake oil, why is the term used to describe someone who's selling you BS? It probably has to do a lot with xenophobia. So the introduction of snake oil into the U.S. mostly occurred with the arrival of Chinese laborers who came to build the Transcontinental Railroad in the mid-1800s. They may have offered snake oil to fellow workers as relief for suffering long days of physical toil. There were a lot of claims that this worked, and it kind of began as a market opportunity in this very specific kind of need. And not everyone was happy with this. The claim that snake oil was actually helpful for reducing pain was ridiculed by 19th century rival medicine salespeople who competed with snake oil entrepreneurs in peddling other medicines for pain. And a lot of times, they offer more hazardous alternatives, such as alcohol or opium. So what could have actually happened is that selling snake oil is a business endeavor that was taken up by salesmen all over, and a lot of times it was diluted or just not real. At a certain point as a treatment, it lost its legitimacy. And it's important to note context. This is happening at a time in American history that is really interesting when it comes to food and medicine. The country was changing from an agricultural model of business to a manufacturing model of business. Processed and manufactured food was becoming more commonplace. Food needed to have a longer shelf life in order to be able to go through this process and still be presumably edible. So we're seeing an introduction to new kinds of preservatives. An example of a preservative used during this time period is borax. Borax is a common cleaning agent and is now known to be toxic when consumed. At this time, there was no real federal regulation of this kind of agent in this food. This changes in 1906. And a lot of the agents who kind of led to this change is women's activist groups, journalists, and poison squads, which are actually a group of people who voluntarily poison themselves to make a point. I'm going to actually get into all of that later, but right now I want to talk about a cowboy named Clark Stanley. So Clark Stanley was a cowboy who lived in the late 1800s in America. He called himself the Rattlesnake King, which is really fucking extra. And I'm so glad to be recording this again, post 
Netflix Tiger King era because it is so appropriate. Somebody who refers to themselves as King is usually full of shit. So Clark Stanley was a literal snake oil salesman. He sold a liniment or, you know, an elixir that was meant to be good for man and beast. That's a direct quote. So during the 1893 World's Columbian Exposition in Chicago, he made his entrance for the audience by slaughtering hundreds of rattlesnakes. Here are some of the claims that he made for his oil. Good for the treatment of rheumatism, neuralgia, sciatica, lame back, lumbago, contracted muscles, toothache, sprains, swellings. Good for everything a liniment should be good for. Cures frostbites, chillblains, bruises, sore throat, and bites of animals, insects, and reptiles. The bottle was sold for 50 cents each, and it promised immediate relief. Stanley claimed that he learned about this from a Moki Pueblo medicine man, which is possible because some indigenous Americans did actually use rattlesnake grease in the same way. It also could have just been a way for him to add some twist and exoticness to this. Clark is a really good example of kind of a stereotypical snake oil salesman. He's over the top, he plays on stereotypes, he dresses really interestingly, and he tries to captivate his audience with a performance. Again, this reminds me so much of Joe Exotic in Tiger King, this over-the-top, bizarre, renegade, cowboy persona that's supposed to grab your attention to sell you something, and also, of course, cruelty to animals. Clark saw the rising popularity of using snake oil to make his own domestic product to rival what was coming in from China. Instead of using water snakes, he was actually using rattlesnakes, and I think that this had some kind of poisonous mystique to add to his product. The problem is that there weren't enough rattlesnakes for him to collect to meet the demand for the oil that he was selling. So he made some changes. Actually, these were some pretty major changes, but I'll get to that later. Because Stanley Clark got into some trouble for that. But now I'm actually going to talk about the Pure Food and Drug Act. So the Pure Food and Drug Act of 1906 was a key piece of progressive era legislation that was signed into law by President Theodore Roosevelt on the same day as the Federal Meat Inspection Act. It created what is now known as the U.S. Food and Drug Administration in 1930. This was the first federal law regulating food and drugs. At the time, it was limited to food and drugs moving in interstate commerce, so moving across state lines, which would eventually change. It was expanded in the 1930s, and that's when the FDA was created, and it started to include things like cosmetics. This federal law defined misbranding and adulteration for the first time and prescribed penalties for each of those things. Particular drugs were labeled as addictive. And under the law, drug labels had to list any of the 10 ingredients that were deemed addictive or dangerous on the product label if they were present. It also stipulated that they could not list 
any of the ingredients that are not actually present. The things that were included in that list of addictive substances included alcohol, morphine, opium, and cannabis. The law also established a group of food and drug inspectors that uh, an opponent of this law referred to as, quote, a Trojan horse with a belly full of inspectors and other employees. So people who aren't a fan of federal regulation and inspection were not a huge fan of this for this reason. While the penalties for breaking the law were really not that high, another provision of the act was actually really powerful. Goods that were found in violation of various areas of the law were subject to be seized and destroyed at the expense of the person creating them. So this is the punishment that had a lot of teeth. That combined with the legal requirement that all convictions be published as notices of judgment were actually important tools in the enforcement of this statute. And that was where the real deterrent was. So the passage of this act um, kind of belies a sense of the times. It was a really interesting time for this area of law and for food and drugs. It's no surprise and it's nothing new to say that food is a politicized topic, like most topics are. This is a really good example of that. There were three really big proponents of a movement referred to as the pure foods movement. And those proponents were women's activist organizations, muckraking journalists, and a guy named Harvey Wiley and a sacrificial squad of people who like I said before, voluntarily took poison. And that's actually a part of the story that gets really wild. Even wilder than a guy who calls himself the Rattlesnake King. So first I'll talk about women's organizations. This is a era that we refer to as a progressive era. People are becoming very suspicious of the role of business and politics, and they're starting to demand accountability from businesses, uh, demand account accountability in terms of what they sell and what they claim. Now remember, before the passage of this act, nobody was really regulating food and drugs, and ingredients like borax were being used as preservative. The Ladies' Health Protective Association was the first women's group to join the pure foods movement. Starting in 1884, they began a campaign to rid New York City of unsanitary slaughterhouses. They were really passionate about this particular movement. They thought that city bureaucrats were apathetic, and they felt... Uh, empowered to protect their families and the neighborhood. They felt that they couldn't trust city bureaucrats and that they had to take up these endeavors on their own. A lot of times food safety is an issue of class. Abuses on food safety and honesty in advertising are common and more prevalent in poor communities. And these can lead to malnourishment, violence, and other social problems. And the pure foods movement for this reason is actually the nascence of the temperament movement. It's this arousal of a sense of responsibility and initiative to protect families and the community. The temperament movement did lead to a constitutional amendment that banned alcohol and was uh, eventually overturned, um, but it was a pretty significant time in American history, even if that particular amendment did not last the test of time. Now I'm going to get to Harvey Wiley, the person I said who is probably the wildest aspect of this story. 
Wiley was a chemist and also a really big supporter of the pure foods movement. He created these experiments called poison squads. And in these squads, men volunteered to ingest the kind of preservatives that the pure food movement saw as a concern. I'm now going to read you some poems about this poison squad. On prussic acid, we break our fast. We lunch on morphine stew. We dine with matchhead consomme, drink carbolic acid brew. Another poem. Oh, maybe this bread contains alum and chalk, or sawdust chopped up very fine, or gypsum in powder about which they talk, terra alba just out of the mine. And our fate in the butter is apt to be weak, for we haven't a good place to pin it. A natto so yellow and beef fat so sleek, oh, I wish I could know what was in it. Okay, that was fire, right? That was pretty fire. Took me like four takes to get that done. <laughs> so beginning in 1902, a group of 12 young men would eat food every night that came from a government-run kitchen, and they ingested common and previously untested food preservatives. So this included formaldehyde, benzoate, and borax tablets. The way that these men were recruited is that a lot of them were employees of the Bureau of Chemistry or Georgetown medical students who were lured by the promise of extra money and free room and board, because this was basically a boarding house. This was a $5,000 government grant that was secured by Wiley, and he bought food, hired a cook, and brought on the first 12 members of the squad. Each participant was carefully observed. Their weight, temperature, and pulse were recorded before the meal. Their stool and urine samples were tested. The cases of sickness and nausea were recorded. And of course, women were not allowed to join. Eventually, the Poison Squad went on strike that same May. The Evening News wrote that the 12 men at the borax table refused to take any more borax. And in the summer, apparently, it was too much to go through the discomfort in the heat. So Wiley had to compromise his experiment. Seven men agreed to eat the borax until late June, and then the scientists consented to end the experiment early. After that experiment drew to a close, Wiley determined that yes, shockingly, borax caused severe stomach aches, a loss of appetite and headaches, rendering his subjects unfit for work of any kind. And despite the reports that came out of this first group, Wiley had no trouble getting new men to sign up for his next experiment, which was salicylic acid. Wiley was, again, forced to abandon his tests to let the group recover. By the end of the Poison Squad's existence in 1907, those who didn't withdraw from the experiments were observed to be on a slow approach toward death after eating long-term doses of these additives. Formaldehyde caused damage to the kidneys, this was commonly used in dairy products, and benzoate caused unhealthy weight loss and blood vessel damage. One participant in this squad actually died of tuberculosis allegedly after being weakened from the poison. After five years of testing dangerous ingredients, Wiley decided that he had gathered enough evidence that these common food additives were hurting people. So now I'm going to pivot to talk about journalists and the role that journalism played in this new era of legislation. In 1906, a journalist named Upton Sinclair published a book called The Jungle. In this, he exposed the filthy condition of Chicago slaughterhouses. 
He talked to workers and their families, and his focus was the plight of the workers. The book also discovered certain conditions in those slaughterhouses that made people very weary of eating beef. The book was a bestseller, and public outcry as a result of the book prompted President Theodore Roosevelt to send officials to investigate these slaughterhouses. The report that investigators eventually published ended up being incredibly shocking to the public. And the reports that came from these investigations actually helped to be the final push to help the Pure Food and Drug Act move quickly through Congress. So now we're going to go back to the rattlesnake king, Clark Stanley, and his snake oil liniment. Investigators actually ended up investigating his product, and they found that his liniment did not contain any snake products whatsoever. According to the official report, bottles that were seized contained a rather bizarre mixture of mineral oil, camphor, cayenne pepper, animal fat, and turpentine. Because of this, Stanley was charged under the Pure Food and Drug Act for, quote, misbranding his product. And all that amounted to a $20 fine. Still, the government report helped kill his demand for his product, and Stanley soon found himself out of business. Even though the scam had likely made him a wealthy man, he never really fully recovered from this and quickly faded into obscurity. So eventually, the Food, Drug, and Cosmetics Act of 1938 made a lot of changes to the 1906 Pure Food and Drug Act. Some of those changes included that drug manufacturers were required to provide scientific proof that new products could be safely used before putting them on the market. Cosmetics and therapeutic devices were regulated. This was new. Proof of fraud was no longer required to stop false claims for drugs. And what was considered poisonous substances were now prohibited from being added to food except where unavoidable and required in production. Safe tolerances were authorized for residues of these substances, for example, pesticides. It designated certain amounts that were tolerable and less likely to be harmful to be allowed in these kinds of products because it was unavoidable and a part of that product being able to perform the way it needed to. So in this particular journey down this rabbit hole, there's a lot to think about. There's a lot to think about in terms of the role that the government plays in protecting us and where that role begins and ends. There's a lot to think about in terms of why we will vilify certain people for selling something and then other people can make profit off of it for selling that thing. So the example here is snake oil, which was originally brought over by the Chinese, was vilified by competing salespeople, and then eventually it was turned into an opportunity for profit when it was being sold by domestic salespeople. It also kind of illustrates what science was able to quote, unquote, get away with during those times. I highly doubt any sort of scientific institution in our modern times with the creation of internal review boards would be able to get away with having people poison themselves, knowingly poison themselves. It's one thing to ask someone to take an experimental drug that has been tested for safety and presumed to be safe, but it's another to give someone something that is known to be harmful. It also, I think, is an important story in terms of showing the importance of grassroots movements in creating social change. I think that grassroots organizations played a very large role in the passage of regulations 
targeting food and drug safety. A lot of these organizations were women's groups because women saw themselves as gatekeepers in the community. They saw themselves as leaders in terms of promoting health and safety in their community. I also want to note that in my research, I found that it wasn't just white women who kind of took initiative in this particular movement. Black women's organizations were also involved in the pure foods movement. I do feel like it's important to point that out because I think as a society, we have had a habit of discrediting or actually never crediting the involvement of black activist groups who were up against racism and they were up against you know legally sanctioned exclusion in society and despite this still took initiative to be involved in these important moments in history i think if you wanted to extend this conversation you could see that there are a lot of connections between the temperament movement and the pure foods movement as has been kind of noted in the literature I think the temperament movement has been often seen as a very puritanical and moralistic movement. And I think that it's not untrue that it was those things, but I see it a little bit differently when I see it through the framework of public health, that it was an experiment in public health. And I think it's history that allows us to see it as maybe not as effective as it could have been or should have been. I think that would be an episode in and of itself. But I think that discussion is really timely because public health is a topic that is so hot right now, right? People wearing masks versus not wearing masks. What role can the government play in telling us how to live our daily lives in order to promote public health during a global pandemic? There's a lot of heated discussion happening about what role a government or state should play in telling businesses what they can or can't do to promote public safety. The other thing that I think is really important to remember and to note is that quote-unquote selling snake oil or marketing things in a dishonest way didn't end with the passage of these acts. They were really important pieces of legislation and I think we're better off than we were in the late 1800s or in the early 1900s. But as we've seen with this pandemic, people are still trying to sell you crap. Even if they don't explicitly tell you that their product prevents coronavirus or cures coronavirus, I think we have seen a lot of wellness and health brands imply, very heavily imply, or play on the fears around this pandemic to sell their products. Things like teas and juices and drinks that are supposed to boost your immune system. Immune system. I'm going to leave that in boost your immune system to, you know, make you feel better about the fact that we live in really scary times when it comes to our health. I think that distrust uh, wavers throughout different points of history. I think right now we are at a point of really high distrust for the people that ostensibly we are supposed to trust, the people that we uh, assign the role of providing us helpful information and providing us protection, whether that distrust is targeted at the government or public health officials or scientists or doctors. And I, th I think that'll be a really interesting topic to explore in my next episode. In my next episode, I'm going to be talking about a doctor who really misused and abused the trust that the public had bestowed upon him as a doctor, as a person with a degree, as a person that we are supposed to go to with our health. I hope you enjoyed this episode and I hope that any of the issues that you noticed in this first episode work themselves out as I get better at this. Again, to my maybe four and a half friends who are listening to this, 
Thank you so much for making it all the way through. Please make sure to comment or subscribe or rate to kind of help me um, continue doing this in the future. And I hope you join me for my next episode. You can find links to a lot of the places where I found my information in the podcast description. Thank you for joining me down the rabbit hole. And now for the fancy music fade out. Sorry, I'm not going to try the sexy voice again in my next episode. Unless you're into that. If you think that's what it takes for this podcast to succeed, please let me know. I will keep the sexy voice in.